I love Advent, uh, and I'm really delighted that the first time I get to preach with you guys is on Advent 4, which I have decided this morning shall be known henceforth as Sweater Sunday. Um, It's cold out there, so good job. Thanks for being here. One of the things I really love, much to Laura's chagrin, is stand-up comedy. Uh, And the thing that she loves less than stand-up comedy is me telling her about stand-up comedy. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. It's true, though. Uh, And I want to tell you about a funny bit. This is maybe the... Yeah, it's not good to tell other people about comedy, but I found a funny bit about... He's a comedian named Sebastian Maniscalco, and I don't know if he's clean or recommendable, so I'm not recommending him. Other than to say he has a hilarious bit um, about doorbells. Um, And I thought it was so appropriate. These days, when the doorbell rings at your house, it's a completely different scenario than when the doorbell rang at at least my house when I was a kid. Um, At that time, when we were young and the doorbell rang, it was a happy moment. (gasps) The doorbell rang. It was, a, it was a great thing. And the kids, they, we would go running in our socks and we would slide up to the door and, and we'd swing the door open and it was called company. Company had come. Everything in the house would stop. Uh, you know, mom would go shopping at the grocery store and she might buy some Entenmann's or some Sara Lee. And that was not to be touched because that was for company, he says. And uh, yeah. But today, when the doorbell rings, it's a completely different scenario, isn't it? Bing pong. Who's doing that? What do they want? Quiet, kids, quiet. Get away from the windows. Stop. (laughs) It's a completely different scenario when the doorbell rings today. Things have changed significantly. So it's silly, but I want to talk about um, company. Uh, this morning we're going to look at two people in Jesus' family tree who, in the midst of some incredibly difficult circumstances, had their proverbial doorbells rung, welcomed company into their home, and each received some very difficult news and how these family members of Jesus responded very differently. So first, our Old Testament passage, uh, Ahaz. So a little bit of context for King Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah. He's in Jerusalem. And at this time, the city is surrounded by an army, besieged. The uh, beginning of chapter 7 says that Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah are terrified, that the heart, his heart and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. He is up against the wall. He's terrified. And in the beginning of, again, in chapter 7, before we read, um, Isaiah comes to Ahaz with a message from the Lord. And he assures Ahaz that the attack of his enemies and the siege would not be successful to remain calm and steadfast. Side note to the husbands out there. Um, sorry, Laura, I'm using you again as a reference. Uh, it's our 13th, we had our 13th anniversary just the other week. It was, yeah. Thank you. So I know a thing or two about what wives like to hear. And if there's anything I know, it's that women love to be told to calm down and not to worry. (laughs) If you're ever needing to de-escalate a situation, just say, you're overreacting. It's going to be okay. Be calm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm hoping to make 14 years. No, clearly this is a different situation here. How does Ahaz receive this word from the Lord? What's great about the Bible is that we have a lot of books in the Bible. We're not going to actually physically turn there, but if you're interested, 2 Kings chapter 16 gives us the backstory. What's going on behind the scenes? And we can see that Ahaz sends a message to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria had a much bigger army than the army that was surrounding Jerusalem. And Ahaz thought, if I could convince him to help me, he takes money from basically the the temple offering money and uh, treasures from the royal treasury, bribes the king of Assyria and says, uh, would you protect us? Uh, And if you've ever watched a good mob movie... Do you think that those sort of arrangements are exited um, whenever the threat subsides with no strings attached? No, of course not. What he ends up doing, Ahaz, is uh, successfully landing himself on the he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord list. But did his plan work? Well, yes, actually, and no. Uh, Syria does mitigate the threat. The siege is ended, and Jerusalem is temporarily saved. But by doing what he did, Ahaz emptied the throne of David of any power and any meaning. Falling like dominoes, the kingdom's fate is sealed, and God's people are eventually exiled from the land. So the question I want to ask ourselves is how does the Bible want us to understand exactly what went wrong here? Our Isaiah reading today indicates that a boy, born of a virgin, who was to be named Emmanuel, God with us, was to be a sign offered by God to Ahaz that he would save them, that the threat from the sieging army would not succeed. But it sort of repeats this, what initially looks like kind of a non sequitur, um, this time frame of the victory, that by the time the boy knew how to choose the good and refuse the evil, the threat would be mitigated. In fact, it repeats it twice, uh, which is just kind of strange. And so I was looking at that phrase, and in the scriptures there are certain phrases, to borrow a, a term that the Bible Project uses, it's called hyperlinks, right? You, you see a, a phrase, and it's intended to draw your attention to another reference. We do this in our culture all the time. Like if I'm talking to my sons and I say, I am your father, like I'm meaning, listen to me, I'm your father. But I'm obviously referencing Darth Vader um, and putting fear in the hearts of my boys. <laughs> Or pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, Obviously, a reference to Oz. In this case, the phrase knowing good and evil, or in the Hebrew, tov and ra, uh, is a hyperlink. Uh, Tov and ra, of course, are good and bad. It's, It's throughout the whole Bible. That in and of itself is not a hyperlink. But knowing good and evil is a very specific phrase that's only used three times in the whole Old Testament, four times in the entire Old Testament. One is this example. Two others are, and track with me here for just a minute, Deuteronomy 1, when Israel is trying to go to the promised land, and God says, you will not be allowed in, but your children who yet have no knowledge of Tov and Ra, of good and evil, will be permitted in, in lieu of your lack of faith. First Kings 3, Solomon has just been made king, and he prays 
O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, give your servant, therefore, under an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern or know between Tov and Ra. Of course, this instance in Isaiah, the child. And these are all clearly instances of either children or people who feel like children who have yet to reach uh, this ability to, to clearly discern between good and bad. And the fourth, you may already be thinking about it, is, of course, paradigmatically, Genesis chapter 2, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So as Isaiah is, is writing this story and he's talking about this child that would be given as a sign to Ahaz, the hearers are thinking of this tree. Now, we don't have the time nor me the ability to do an exhaustive study on Eden and trees and how all of that works. But I want to make clear that knowing good and evil is not a bad thing. Clearly, um, Eve really did see that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was desired to make one wise. It's a good thing to have wisdom. Wisdom is not a bad thing. God wants us to have wisdom. I think that's clear. But the events surrounding the tree in the Garden of Eden and the downfall of our first parents was the grasping at and the taking of that which is to be received. It's making the decision for what is good and bad in our eyes rather than trusting God and his wisdom on his terms and his timing. So the ultimate reality in our lives is that we need God more than we need any strategy, any solution, or any self-sufficiency that we think we can offer. The other evening at dinner, I was sitting next to Finn, my almost two-year-old, and I can't remember what we were eating, but we had potatoes, hot potatoes, and I plate his food, and then I usually do that first to let it cool, and then I go to the next kid and then try to do that, and I tell Finn, just wait, okay, and I'll help you. And what do you think he did? He grabs a handful of hot potatoes with his hand and shoves them in his mouth. (laughs) The food I had for him was good, but he needed to wait until I was ready to give it to him. And so for Ahaz, who chose what was right in his eyes, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, was very much like the coming of God in the presence of Adam and Eve in the cool of the day after they grasped what was good in their own eyes. What was once an opportunity of sweet communion with the one who loved them most was now a moment fraught with fear and judgment. Instead of trusting God and his timing, instead of trusting God's means to bring about victory against the army that besieged him, instead of savoring sweet communion with God in the midst of uncertainty, Ahaz seized what was not his for the taking, and therefore the God who was with him that could have been salvation was in fact judgment. There is a way, Proverbs says, that seems right to a man, but in the end its way is the way of death. Now, King Ahaz was legitimately a terrible dude. Like He was really awful. He sacrificed his own son to a pagan god, made countless pagan offerings on high places all throughout the place. But in all fairness, we do have the benefit of the narrator's omniscience, right? And thousands of years of reflection. Um, 
But in all fairness, as difficult as it must have been for Ahaz in that moment with the responsibility that he had for the number of people that he did, the gospel passage today gives us an incredibly beautiful alternative response to hard counsel from the Lord. Today, in our uh, lectionary church calendar, is Annunciation Sunday. Uh, Traditionally, this Sunday is the Sunday where the church considers the Archangel Gabriel's gender reveal to Mary. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's much more than that. It's maybe history's only divinity reveal as well. Um, I I wonder if, like, Gabriel had one of those confetti cannons and he was like... Surprise! It's, it's a boy and God. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but today the Annunciation passage is in Matthew, and it's actually the Annunciation to Joseph, a little bit different than Mary's. Joseph was, of course, betrothed to Mary. Love, true love. That's um, one of those references. Um, <laughs> But then the unimaginable happens, right? We know the story. Uh, His pristine, beautiful wife that he was looking forward to spending the rest of his life with was with child. The heartbreak is unimaginable. Um, Like Ahaz, Joseph finds himself up against a wall. Now, it's maybe not the magnitude of the, of the situation that Ahaz was dealing with, besieged by enemy nations, the starvation of an entire city, a very real threat, his ability to rule under threat, under attack. But for Joseph, this was equally earth-shattering for the amount of shame and embarrassment and disappointment he could, he would have to endure was unfathomable. As he walked through the market hearing the, the whispers, oh, it's poor Joseph. Did you know what his wife did to him? Can you imagine that? No one deserves that. They would tisk. Now, now maybe he was a man of uncommon virtue. The Bible does say he was a just man. Or perhaps he just didn't want to make a fuss. Move on. Close that chapter and move on. So he devised a plan to end the marriage quietly. We've all, well, maybe not been in that exact situation, uh, but we've all been in moments where we have faced an impossible situation. Maybe like Joseph, you can reflect on that moment and you can feel the tension in your body, even as you think about that moment, a pit in your stomach or a tightness in your chest. And you're racking your brain. How, what are my options? How can I, where can I go? Who can counsel me? What you're weighing constantly weighing one option or the other. And at this very moment, as Joseph is considering these things, we're told, he's visited by an angel. And he's assured that the child conceived in her is, in fact, from the Holy Spirit, and that he should remain calm and continue with his plans for marriage. None of this made any logical sense. How on earth, if you thought the scandal of her pregnancy was enough, this was lunacy. I mean, this is insane. God is the father of this child. And how does Joseph respond? Would you blame him if he continued with his plans? I'm not sure I would have. But in the grace of God, verse 24 says simply, 
When he awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Unreal. What a contrast from Ahaz. What a relief to Mary. Can you imagine the the fortitude that must have given her, the confidence it would have inspired in her with his support to face the accusations and the sneering and the sideways looks and the maybe less than subtle insults. What a good man he was. And therefore the arrival of God in their midst, the God with us, Emmanuel, was for Joseph and therefore for us all life and salvation. And so we've seen how God was welcomed with King Ahaz and how Joseph welcomed God. And the question, therefore, like any good sermon, uh, lies now with you and me. How will we welcome God in our midst? It's one week until Christmas, the Lord's first advent, and it does remain to be seen how long we will wait for his second coming. But even as we said this morning, come quickly, Lord. But the unassailable fact is that God is coming. Will his return find us like Ahaz, busy using our worldly wisdom and influence to navigate our lives and solve our problems our way, ignorant or worse yet, in opposition to God? Will his coming for us be a fearful judgment? Or will we be like Joseph? And Mary, whose yes to God, though undoubtedly enormously complicated their lives, was nothing short of God's very presence. So how do we do that? I think first and foremost, it's critical that we remember that God is the main story, or main character rather, in this story. All too often, by virtue of our striking lack of omniscience, um, we tend to think that this is our story, that we're the center, we're the main character, with a good dose of Western individualism and American pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrapsism. Um, we've been conditioned to think it's our responsibility to solve our problems and to figure things out. Like Ahaz, when we're surrounded on all sides, when our back is up against the wall, it's easy to forget that this isn't our story, that this is God's story, that he is the protagonist, and it is we who are caught up into his story. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you are surrounded on all sides. I don't know what it is that you might be up against or what is up against you, but remember this morning that the psalmist reminds us The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. If we needed a reminder, it is God, not ourselves, who sits enthroned in heaven. And as such, let us place our confidence in him. It's not denying our responsibility to participate with him in the the realizing of his kingdom in our midst, but we need a posture of childlikeness in deference to the Lord and his wisdom And his timing. Jesus, I don't know how you're going to solve this one. I don't know how you're supposed to, I don't know how I'm supposed to respond to that email, or I don't know how I'm supposed to look that person in the face at that family gathering, or I don't know how I'm going to make it to the next paycheck, or I don't know. Lord, you're going to have to figure this out some way. And the beauty of it is, um, we've been given so many gifts 
in order to do this, in order to keep God the main actor in our story. These are, this is a revolutionary list, so if, you're ready, if you have a pencil and a pen, you're going to want to write this down. Number one, reading your Bible. It's, I know, just wait. Uh, <laughs> but watching, him, watching God work throughout history in really broken, really messed up people, impossible situations, guiding people towards the realization of his reign. What a good way to remind ourselves that God is, in fact, sovereign. Number two. You ready? Prayer. I told you, this is going to blow your socks off. All too often, I think, personally, this is me, I can convince myself, I don't think this cognitively because I'm a pastor and that's not what you do, um, but, but you convince yourself that prayer is not necessary because God already knows all this stuff and he's clearly a lot smarter and, and he can figure this out. And I mean, there's an element of truth in that, but perhaps it, the thing that I need more than just my problems being solved is to relate to God in such a way that deepens my intimacy with him. That places my full confidence in him, praying the prayers he taught us to pray and bringing our wills into alignment with his. Number three. Ready? (laughs) Making Sunday worship a priority. You've already done it. This is great. Every week throughout the course of this service, we reenact the drama of salvation, of God's working in our lives. And the more we do that, the more that we make that drama the dominating motif of our lives. To see what we participate in here as the holiest, most defining thing we do all week and allow that to propel us out into the world as emissaries of Christ. To allow that to shape our lives. And lastly... Um, I don't know exactly what to call this, but uh, I wrote modeling appropriate vulnerability to mature believers. You can do that in table groups. I love table groups so much. And it's not intended, okay, this is kind of intended to be a commercial for table groups. Um, but really, my prayer is that we would use these as groups to grow in love, mutual love and encouragement and vulnerability and accountability with one another. Um, like Hebrews says, stirring up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another all the more as you say that see the day drawing near. And secondly, uh, overall, the, that was the one category. Next category, as we draw to the end of Advent, the good news for you and for me that we have a main character in God and that that main character, the God of the cosmos, has come to you and to me. Individually, he is aware on a cosmic scale of everything in his dominion. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's his. He's aware of all the significant international crises and that you would expect, like Ukraine and China and who's doing what on Twitter. And um, he's in control of all that stuff. But for each and every one of you, the earth is the Lord's, but all who dwell therein. Even today, his spirit is standing on the stoop of your heart. He's ringing your proverbial doorbell, as it were. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And what a table he has set for us. Communing with him 
through the bread and the wine is nothing short of life, fellowship, and communion with the living God. I'll close with a quote from uh, Eugene Peterson. Um, He says, Without the Eucharist, it's easy to drift off into imagining Jesus as our great example whom we will imitate or our great teacher from whom we will learn or our great hero by whom we will be inspired. Without the Eucharist, it's very easy to drift into spirituality that is dominated about, dominated by ideas about Jesus instead of receiving life from Jesus. The table is a plain no to all of that. It puts us in our place, opening our hands and receiving our salvation. It may sound overly simplistic, but it's not. Jesus' coming is our victory. His presence is our peace. His judgment is our vindication. And his power is our strength in our weakness. Yes, he is coming back cosmically to do all the big stuff, to set to right all the wrongs and all the wars. But each week, he's coming to eat with you. Will you welcome him? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Let us pray. Father, perhaps it is not ironic that Isaiah instructs Ahaz to ask for a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. For ultimately you did give your son who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He suffered death and descended to Sheol. And thanks be to God, on the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, and is seated at your right hand. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.